I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithful, faithless people do. I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for beautiful January morning. Thank you for 2021. Lord, we are thankful to be here this morning. We are thankful to have your word open in front of us. Father, just please um, come close for this time that as we spend time together, as we dive into your word, that you would open your heart and open your mind to us, that we would be able to leave here closer with you. Amen. So um, we do have some, some quick announcements. <clears throat> but first, I was this little birdie flew in and handed me a note. It's crazy how this happened. It's like two weeks in a row this has happened. Did you know that tomorrow was Larry's birthday? <laughs> I, the birdie knew, thank goodness. Yes. So can we sing happy birthday to Larry this morning? Oh, no. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Larry. Happy birthday to you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Awesome. That's great. You did. Um, all right. So announcements wise, we've got um, a couple of things. Um, just if you could keep Frankie and, and Kenny um, in your prayers. They, they lost a son-in-law this morning. Um, so please um, just be with them. I, I, we haven't heard anything else other than that their son passed away from a heart attack. So um, please just keep them in your prayers, and I will reach out to everybody if I hear of, of things that they need. Um, food Bank is next week, uh, the 8th and 9th, so be there or be square. Um, this is also a fifth Sunday month, so um, if you're kiddos or you know, if, you, if you're conscripting, if you're sitting around going, hmm, what can I force my kids to do that would make them extremely uncomfortable? No. That isn't the intent at all. We just, uh, the fifth Sunday, we like to um, have the kids in here and, uh, and do some kind of a, a Bible verse or something that's on their hearts. Just kind of hand the church over to them. Give them an opportunity to, uh, to express themselves and express their faith. And uh, I tell you what, we, we always learn a lot um, when, when they do that. Um, let's see. Bible studies uh, will be, you know, I say coming back together, I think, in a couple more weeks. Um, uh, Miss Rhonda is off in, in Virginia seeing grandbabies. Oh, what's up with I know what's up with that? Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Vern is still still sick, so um, pray for his recovery. Yeah, he's I know he's on antibiotics. He'll be back soon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. So we'll be back at the Bible studies here here quickly, and um, and uh, that'll be on the on the list coming soon. So we are in um, in Luke chapter 17, and we are in verses one uh, through ten. Um, is where we are. If you want to want to turn there in your Bibles, and we will we will jump right in. So, the title of this, and if you're depending on your translation, is sin and faith and duty. But we're actually going to focus on humility. We're going to pull out four themes of humility from this passage. But we're in 
Luke chapter, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. I know. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And it says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Kind of disjointed, isn't it? There's a lot going on there, and we'll, we'll unpack it here in just a moment. But as being the, the first message of the year, I wanted to, uh, to go back through and just kind of refresh our memories on, on our ways to study the Bible. I mean, we're, we're jumping in here. It's a new year. How many of you guys made resolutions? Everybody made your resolutions? I, I make the exact same one every year. I think we're going on like 10 years. Still hasn't happened. So we're in good shape. My habits are perfectly developed to get the same results that I'm having. It's great. <laughs> but when we talk about Bible study, there's some reasons that we, that we dump in here we, that we... And there's also some techniques when we study the Bible that we can have. So three reasons to study the Bible. It's essential to spiritual growth, and that's in 1 Peter 2.2. It is essential for spiritual maturity, and it is essential for spiritual effectiveness when we go out on mission. And those are from Hebrews 5 and, and 2 Timothy. So when we talk about Bible study, there are three steps, three steps that we need to do. Just three simple steps. Observation, what do I see? An interpretation, what does it mean? And when we talk about what does it mean, not what does it mean to me. That's one of the big fallacies, one of the things that it drives me absolutely crazy in our modern culture. It doesn't really matter what it means to you. What it matters is what God intended for it to mean. When we talk about Bible study, the Bible is a unique book. There's a lot of books when we read them where you're like, well, you know, I got this out of it, or I got that out of it, or I saw this picture. This isn't that kind of a book. This book is intended for us to obtain the word of God, the truth about God. And there's one truth there. And we're digging and clawing and scratching, trying to get at that truth as essential as it is. And that's what we're looking for when it talks about what does it mean. And the second part is application. How does it work? How can I apply this to my life now? So in there we have, we have six questions. We remember these from when we were in school, the, the who and the what and the where and the when and the why. And then the very last one, the, the wherefore, as John MacArthur says, or the so what. So, like I said, this passage, it seems it's kind of disjointed. It seems like you've got like four different things going on there. But they're really different takes on the same theme, on the theme of humility. And we're going to have to rewind a little bit back into chapter 16 to get into there. But when we get into there, when we get into our steps of interpretation, we have five different steps of interpretation. So we're going to observe the details of the passage. That's the content. We have the context. We're going to know what comes before and after the passage. We're going to have comparison. We're going to compare it to other passages. We're going to have cultural context. We're going to know the culture of, of, of the people at the time. 
And then we have consultation. This is one of the things I do preparing every message. As I go through, I have several different commentaries, um, read about what others have, have come up with when they have read through these passages, um, have several different sources. And it's a good idea to do. It's, and it's amazing that the world that we live in, you have so many resources right at your fingertips for free. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, Bible Gateway or Olive Tree Bible or Bible Hub or um, whatever it is, you can log online and get access to every kind of resource. You can read the Bible in Hebrew, in Greek. You can get the Latin Vulgate, you know, with raw text. You can see pictures of, um, and, and close-up uh, zoomed-in pictures of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We live in an amazing time for Bible study. Um, you have a ton of resources, and don't be afraid to use those. And then we have our, our four steps of application. First one is knowing the truth. That's the hardest one, is knowing the truth. And again, not our truth, not my truth. Who cares about my truth? What is God's truth? What is God's intent? And we want to relate that truth to life. We want to meditate on it. And then we want to put it into practice, actually do what it says. So we have... In here, eight questions, and these, by the way, are, are direct from, from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. These are, uh, this is their guide for, for how to study the Bible. Um, it says, is there an example to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Or is there a condition to meet? Or is there a verse or a passage that we can memorize? Or is there a challenge to follow? So just put those in the back of your mind as we, as we go through Bible study. Throughout the rest of the year, those are just different techniques for us to, to apply as we go through. All right. So again, you're, we have in our, our passage, we have four messages of humility, four messages on the theme of humility in our context. And this is intended for the believer. There's a lot of times when Jesus is talking to unbelievers, when he's talking to people, when he's trying to convert, when he's trying to convince. This is not one of those places. And here he is talking generally to the disciples, and he is talking to them about being good believers. So we jump back just a little bit to Luke chapter 16. It starts off with that parable of the shrewd manager. We covered this a, a few weeks ago. But that passage talks about accountability and also about making peace with Christ and doing it now. That's a, it was about convincing you to follow him right now saying, you know what, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to face judgment. Make peace now while he's a long ways off. And then if you're going to be rebuked, accept rebuke from God. Learn some obedience. Then he has this little section in the middle in verse 16. It says, it's a section on the law. This is important. Grab this one. It says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. This verse 17, highlight this one for today. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away, to disappear, than for the last stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And then 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That passage is super important, and we're going to roll that into today's message. Because it's, it's a remarkable thing. Remember that, that God gave Moses the law. And this is something that we struggle with sometimes. Is how often, how, how thorough should we apply, apply the law to ourselves? How much of it? How much of that should we apply to ourselves in our own lives? We're saying right here, it's the very word of God. 
So does that mean that we should be, you know, doing temples? Should we have Sabbath on, on Saturday? Should we be keeping the feasts and the festivals? Should we be having sacrifices? Is that something that we should be doing? Am I disobeying God when I don't do those things? Is it okay for me to have a Christmas tree and presents? Is that a thing? Kind of tough to know, right? Especially when Jesus comes out and he says, hey, no, not one, not one bit of the law is going to pass away. But we have something a little different here. And we're going to see how it all gels together. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. See, it says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the other one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your own mind, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So if Jesus isn't putting us under the law, what does that mean? See, two things can be true at the exact same time. God gave the law to the people of Israel to make a holy nation, a nation of holy people. And he made specific promises to them regarding those festivals and feasts, the sacrifices, the law, lands and titles, and the provision that their obedience would, would get them. But we can't pretend or put ourselves in their shoes. We can't co-opt those promises that were given to them. The whole idea was that God was going to raise up a nation of priests that would then speak out to the entire world. They would be an example to the world of what a nation under God looks like. But no matter what, from time out of mind, salvation is and always has been by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Now, we can grab the Old Testament and understand it is the word of God. And that, that quote is huge because Jesus is stamping the Old Testament as the legit word of God. 
that's really major for us. That he's not saying, yeah, you know, those parts that, you know, stick in your craw, just, just throw them away. Whatever I said, you go with that. Whatever they said. He's saying, no, you have to reconcile it. You have to have both. My character is the same from the beginning to the very end. My character is the same from beginning to the end. My truth is the same from beginning to the end. And the message is consistent and clear. And it's rubber stamped right there. Saying that, no, 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 not one bit of this is going to pass away. Now, I want you to take a moment and compare that to some other religions. Because if you were to read in the Quran, what does Muhammad say? He says, no, no, I'm the last prophet. So Jesus was a prophet, but I'm the last prophet. And what I say goes. My word supersedes whatever came before. Compare that to Joseph Smith. He says the exact same thing. What I wrote down supersedes anything that came before. So if there's conflict, you have to default to me. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, no, no. It's all my word. It's all the word of God. And it's all true. And you have to reconcile it all. Then in there, notice that he also takes a moment and he issues a rebuke. He issues a rebuke to the religious leaders of the time. And just like, just like at the start of that passage that we're in today, See, the Jews had adopted the, the Roman custom of divorce, and they were misusing parts of the law to allow for it, to allow for, for divorce, for any number of things. They were, you know, she doesn't a good cook. She, uh, you know, doesn't clean well enough. They were pulling passages out of, out of Deuteronomy and using that to allow for divorce. So the first thing Jesus does, he corrects any idea that he is rejecting, replacing, or superseding the Old Testament. Instead, he says, no, I've come to fulfill the law. But then he corrects it. He says, he corrects any idea that God's morality changes with culture. That's huge for us. God's idea of right and wrong does not change, regardless of the timeline, regardless of the frame. And then he goes right in, and he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He gives us an illustration to continue breaking some of the common notions of the time. See, it was common because of the Old Testament. If we were to read through the Old Testament where God says, hey, if you are obedient, you will receive blessing. That's what he says. If you're an obedient people, I will bless the land and it will flow with milk and honey. So a couple hundred thousand years later, they've kind of twisted that to mean that a person that is wealthy is without sin. And a person who is sick or poor is full of sin. That's not what God was saying. And that's what Jesus is correcting. So he tells this prophet, or this, this parable. He says, here's this rich man and here's Lazarus, this, this poor man who's begging at the gate. And the whole point of that, like I say, is to break all of those ideas. But the scary thought for us, when we read through that parable, that rich guy was surprised that he ended up in hell. He wasn't expecting it. He thought he was an all right guy in the eyes of God. Turns out not so much. It turns out that all the superficial things that he was doing in his religion weren't saving him at all. But notice that there's no whining. There's no proclaiming innocence. There's no, you know, protesting. There in hell, all of that goes away. All that is silenced. All the lies, all the excuses, all that stuff is, is washed away. He accepts his fate. He knows the sin that was in his heart. 
when Jesus says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And quite frankly, we all know this to be true. If we're really honest with ourselves, if we really look in the mirror and we really take a moment, we know the truth. It's right there speaking to us all the time. We just deny it when we want to do something that we know we shouldn't do. But finally, the lies will end. The deception of ourselves and others will end, and the father of lies will be silenced. The rich man ends up in hell. The poor man, Lazarus, which is, his name is fascinating, Eleazar, whom God has helped. It's a common name at the time, but whom God has helped. And notice that through that whole parable, Lazarus doesn't speak. The rich man and Abraham have the conversation. But this is important for our passage today. See, the condition of the rich man's heart is evident in how he knew Lazarus, knows him by name. He, he knew his condition, knew his poverty, his sickness, his hunger, his thirst, and did absolutely nothing for him. That morality rings through the Old Testament. The law and the prophets repeatedly talk about caring for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers or visitors. If we go back to Amos chapter 5, verse 4 through 15, it says, This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness. God doesn't like injustice. And cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. God likes it when we tell the truth, and he likes it when there is justice. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. God doesn't like it when we steal. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. See, this rich man, the religious leaders were not keeping the law in their arrogance. Notice how that parable ends. Abraham tells the rich man that his brothers have the law and the prophets. And if they won't repent, won't turn to God in genuine faith, based on hearing the word of God, all the miracles in the world won't help them. That's a heck of a warning as we head into to chapter 17, isn't it? So how serious should we be about the Bible? It turns out pretty serious. Turns out Jesus says there is life-saving, soul-saving, Word of God stuff here in the Bible. If you have the Bible, if you have heard the Word of God, you have no excuse. And with that on our tongues, we roll into chapter 17. And it's a rebuke, again, of the current religious leadership and a warning 
to the disciples as they head out to head up their own ministry. Remember, they're going to go out shortly and start proclaiming the gospel. God does not take false teachers and false religion lightly. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 6, it says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, you, Lord, detest. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 through 17, say, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29 through 31. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Amazing. See, pride, we're talking about humility. Pride is when we put ourselves in God's place. When we try and take God's place in our own lives or in someone else's lives when we seek God's place. And it's at the heart of most sin, pride is. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 through 19 said, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. So really, this whole message is about eliminating pride and seeking humility. It's acknowledging God's place and our place. Why? Because pride is when we seek God's place. But God, in his infinite grace, took our place. That's what's incredible. So we need to humble ourselves before the word of God. First, Jesus endorses it, says it's, it's timeless and it's important. That's an amazing statement, by the way, when we're talking about times of hope and despair, grab that passage out of Luke chapter 16 because Jesus says something absolutely incredible. It would be easier for the earth to be destroyed than for the word of God to pass away. There is zero danger of this book going anywhere. Zero. We have no reason to fear when we talk about Bibles being taken out of schools and Bibles being, you know, not here and not there. Don't worry about it. Just do your job. God has said, the earth will pass away before my word passes away. Just take that off the list of worries. Second, Jesus says it is soul-saving. He says, if you have the law and the prophets, you have everything you need for eternal salvation. That is a remarkable statement. And then the third is a warning. Don't take up proclaiming the gospel or leading others without getting on your knees first. See, the current leaders were not doing a good job. They were proclaiming wrong things. They were proclaiming wrong as right and right as wrong. Is everybody buckled in? It's about to get personal. I sort of apologize. You guys ready? What is racism? What is racism? It's when we treat somebody differently 
based on the color of their skin, right? That's what racism is. It's refusing goods or services or treating people poorly or even differently solely based on race. What about seeing people suffering, continually suffering, and refusing to proclaim the truth that you know would help end their suffering based on race? See, we know that drugs and alcohol and smoking are bad. We warn our own kids about the dangers of those things. But other folks, mm, that's their business. That's their, that's their culture. You know, I don't want to interfere. Might, might cause a scene. We teach our kids to stay in school, to graduate from high school, to plan on college or trade school. Those other folks, well, you know, that's their business. You know, they, they got their own things going on. You know, we don't want to interfere. We buy houses based on safety and schools and sports and culture and environment. Opportunity to make sure our kids have a high probability of success because we know that if they graduate high school and get married before they have kids, there is a 99% chance they won't end up in poverty or in jail. We promote two-parent households. We relentlessly, we cite statistics. I cite statistics from social scientists, from psychologists, and the Bible. Even in this passage, Jesus discourages divorce. Why? We know kids who grow up in two-parent homes are more likely to be successful. So you want to know who is in prison if you take away race, if you don't account for race? Most prisoners in our nation, they're male. They're under 30. Most of them come from families who live in urban communities, not rural. They come from, from poverty, they're poor, and they come from single-parent homes, usually without a dad. 80 to 90%, the statistics muddle a little bit, of those prisoners come from single-parent homes living under the poverty level. You know what is racist? Is being willing to stand in front of a bunch of white people and tell them, stay in school, graduate, get married before you have kids, stay married, but then not to say the same thing to other people, even though we know their kids are the ones who are ending up in poverty and in prison. Well, that's their business. That's their culture. I, I don't want to interfere. I don't want to make a scene. We cannot make one set of rules for our kids, make one set of rules for, for our people, and then make a separate set of rules for another. That's racism. That is putting a stumbling block in front of a brother or a sister. Especially when we know that it will result in their poverty or their imprisonment. So let's see if that doesn't change how you read this. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. See, Jesus is telling us that the word is important. It's, it's not enough just to read and just to understand, but that we have to get to the truth that the truth matters, and there are consequences for those who lose the truth. It's also a warning. He tells us, you're going to stumble. You're going to come across stumbling blocks. That word that's used there is like saying a bait in a trap. 
There's going to be a honey pot out there, something you can't resist. You are going to stumble. We will be tempted and tried. If we went back to, to last week, what was our verse? It said, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. As believers, we are expected to be teachers and examples. And we should not be leading people astray or setting poor examples. This kind of humility requires some courage, doesn't it? It requires some obedience. It requires some, some radical things, doesn't it? And he crashes that right into forgiveness. Humility and forgiveness and fellowship. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, we want to be careful here because there's a difference between being loving and forgiving and being indifferent. There's a lot of times where we take the attitude of, well, you know, you do you. That's fine. You just go and, and do your thing. Not my business. Look the other way. See, if we know that someone is on the wrong path, it's not really loving or, or kind to watch them go, to know that they're headed for a bad place, to know that they're headed for trouble, and to be just like, well, we'll see you once you hit the bottom. Hopefully you come back. Hopefully you realize your mistake. Have a nice trip. That's not really being loving or kind. But we do that, why? because we don't want to come across as mean or judgmental. And that's a good point. We don't want to be, you know, out here saying, oh, you shouldn't do whatever. We don't want to be out here trying to be judgmental about people. And that's true. It does have to be loving, and it does have to be kind. But it does have to come. Because, again, if my kids were lying, cheating, stealing, I would want to hold them accountable. And I would want you to hold them accountable. Why? Those things are wrong. And they need to learn they are wrong so they can be decent human beings at the minimum, let alone followers of Christ. Oh, yeah, I, I knew so-and-so was cheating. I just, I just figured it wasn't my business. So what if someone in the church has gone off the rails? Well, thankfully, we have a guide for that. You flip over to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. God gives us a four-step process. But the goal is to lovingly restore the believer and to preserve the integrity of the church. Yes, we are all broken sinners. Yes, we are the sick who need a doctor. But that is not an excuse for descending into debauchery. We're going to talk about our freedom as believers and what we should do with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through 33. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. 
eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Amen. See, forgiveness is the most godlike thing we can do. When we have been wronged, really hurt by someone else, the temptation is to reject them or to retaliate. Christ says to forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, I want to tread lightly here, because especially in our current culture, no one needs to be abused. And staying in abusive relationships is not good, that's not healthy, and that's not what we're talking about here. See, there's sins that we didn't mean to commit. Sometimes we offend people and we have no idea. I'll probably get 16 letters after today. There are sins we meant to commit, right? I just wanted to. But then there's abusive habits, intentionally being mean and hurtful to someone else. Now, the first two go and confront, we can reconcile. The last one, if someone is being abusive, they, they need help. They need professional help. And that is not anything that any of us should think that we can tackle on our own. The first one, no repentance is required. Just let it go. If somebody didn't mean to harm you, if somebody didn't mean to hurt you, just forgive them and move on. The second one, if somebody meant to harm you, then yeah, there needs to be some repentance. There needs to be some acknowledgement. They need to come clean and, and admit what they did, and you can reconcile and move on. But this is the radical idea that we're trying to spring forth from here. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. If you want to turn in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be going through quite a bit here from the Sermon on the Mount. It says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If, those, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you read only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have been loved and forgiven, so be loving and forgiving. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Remember that forgiveness is a hallmark of the Christian. Because when we have been convicted of our sin, and we have laid our iniquities at the foot of the cross, it's pretty hard to look at a fellow sojourner with anything but fellowship. I'm sorry, maybe I, I got off on the wrong stop, but I just, I don't have it in me to hate anybody. I don't have it. See, all these people that we meet in our lives, all the souls that, that drift past us, they're all eternal lights, every single one of them. They're all special gifts from God. 
They're all amazing pieces of heaven. And they're all headed to one of two places, either eternal salvation or eternal separation. How could we not look on that with love? And this river of life is just carrying us all to the beyond. And we have chosen, but the thing is, there is no such thing as as just a man or just a woman. There is divine in each of us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15 say, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. See, that's pride. Remember we were talking about pride? Refusing to forgive puts you in the judgment seat, not God. You're seeking God's place. That's arrogant to sit in judgment, condemnation, or vengeance of a brother or sister. Those things belong to God. That's in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. We need to humble ourselves in our search of God. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Remember that we have we have two audiences. There's a reason why we had to go back to chapter 16 a little bit. We have two audiences for this passage. We have the disciples, and we have the Sadducees and Pharisees. Luke 16, verse 14 said, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They heard the exact same things that we have just been talking about. And what was their response? What was their reaction? It was to sneer. It was to plot. It was to plan. Eventually, they would, they would kill Jesus. That was their response to these words. They weren't convicted of their sin. They weren't thinking about humbling themselves before the cross. They weren't thinking about how they could turn their lives, about how they could repent. They weren't thinking about their own pride and their arrogance. They were hurt and angry, vengeful. Compare that to the disciples, to the apostles. What's their response? They go, okay, so uh, my faith is a little small. Uh, Sure do appreciate this, but um, Father, we're going to need a little workout. Um, Could you uh, increase our faith a little bit? Because uh, I am certainly not up to what you have just said. Um, I'm thinking about this rich guy that I thought he was going to be the guy going to heaven, and he was not. And I was thinking about your word, and then you were saying we were going to go out and preach, but then you were saying that, um, you know, it's a heavy millstone, like I should drown rather than not tell the truth. Uh, Help. (laughs) That's what they say. That's their response. They humble themselves before God and say, Father, please increase our faith. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus expounds on the Ten Commandments and what they mean and the condition in the minds and the hearts of believers. Jesus has told this parable, this rich man, Lazarus, he broke these notions. And notice the contrast that were in that parable. He had the healthy man, the rich man, versus the poor man who was covered in sores and licked by dogs. He had the rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen versus the poor man who was dressed in rags. He had the wealthy man living in a fine home with a gate versus the poor man living on a mat outside that gate. He had the rich man who was full, who was never thirsty, never hungry, versus the poor man who was begging for scraps fit for the dogs. He had the rich man who was wealthy and the poor man who was poor. 
Now, we know the rich guy was religious. We don't know about the poor man. But which one of those guys was forgiven and redeemed? That's a heck of a staunch warning, isn't it, about dealing rightly with the truth. Who teaches us, who we teach, and the example that we set? Then Jesus talks about forgiving each other. So that lesson in humility, it had to sting a little bit because that's almost a direct rebuke, especially to Peter, John, and Andrew. All of them were prideful at different times during the years they walked with Jesus. You can go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, to see some examples. It says, this is the, the, them in the storm. And uh, Jesus, you know, he, he calms the waves, and the, the men were astonished, and he says, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Then uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, this is, they're going across the lake, and they forgot to take the bread. <laughs> Jesus says, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed among themselves, saying, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Matthew chapter 17, verse 21 when they weren't able to, uh, to cast out a demon. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. But listen to their response. It was not searing, sneering or vindictive. It was searching and eager. So we want to be like these guys. We want to be curious. We've been watching Ted Lasso on Apple. It's a fun show. Ted Lasso's a, a good guy. But there's a, there's a part, there's one of our, our favorite parts in the show. Ted's a, an American football coach. He was like a two-way champion coach, and he's actually teaching soccer over in, uh, over in the U.K. So it kind of sets up this funny thing. And Ted's just a, a genuinely positive, good guy. But there's a part where the bad guy, this rich guy who used to own the team, who doesn't own the team anymore, challenges him to a, to a game of darts. And he assumes, because he's, he's rich and he's arrogant, he's you know, good-looking, all the things that he has on, in his cards, he just assumes that he can beat Ted. He's not curious. He just figures that he's got it all figured out. He's never lost. Why should he? He has no idea that Ted has played darts every Sunday with his dad from the time he was a boy. That arrogant man dismissed, and he ultimately loses, to the humble man. Because the humble man, who was curious, asked questions. When we were seeing our thing about relationships from um, a couple of doctors a while ago, it says, be curious, not critical. Instead of reacting in fear and anger and pride, what if we were curious Remember our eight questions of application that we saw earlier. Is there an example to follow, a sin to avoid, a promise to claim, a prayer to repeat, a command to obey, a condition to meet, a verse or a passage to memorize? 
Is there a challenge to follow? See, Jesus says the curious believer is able to move mountains and mulberry trees. Then we go into the conclusion, our last lesson in humility for this. It says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Kind of stinks when Jesus looks at us and says, do your job, man. It's a little rough. When he says, I, I, I'm not out here to give out participation trophies. That word here for servant is, is doulos, or a bond servant. Someone who owes a debt. They were unable to repay it, and now they're serving. And remember, that's when we have the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, all debts were forgiven in the land of Israel. But a bondservant could choose to stay if they were being treated well, if um, they, they didn't think they could make it on their own. They could choose to stay, and they would take and they would nail their ear to a doorpost, and they would wear an earring on their left side that would indicate that they had chosen to remain a servant. See, we have been purchased. We have been bought with a price, a debt that we can never repay. We know our sin. It's ever before us. It's only pride that keeps us from acknowledging our sin and laying it at the foot of the cross. We are or we were slaves to sin, sold into death, and destined for torment and despair. Think about that rich man just wanting one little drop of water. He said, please, send Lazarus to dip his finger into the pool and bring me a drop of water. But then, we were purchased redeemed. Our debt was paid. <laughs> Make no mistake, that debt was mine. It was all mine, every dime of it. So what then if the one who purchased us asks us to work in his house, to work the land, to tend the fields, to clean the tables? Is that an unfair ask? No. Quite frankly, it's, it's more than fair. And the thing is, our work is not finished. If we're here today, if we're drawing breath, if we're in this building today, if the sun rises today, our work is not finished. If the sun rises tomorrow, if we draw breath tomorrow, our work is not finished. I've never owned my own company. Well, I guess I sort of do, but I've never like actually ran a company, like actually tried to build a business. But I've worked for some pretty good guys throughout my life. I've been very blessed. One thing that strikes me about most of the bosses that I've had, they're good people. They're hardworking people, just by, by nature. They're hardworking people. And quite frankly, most of them don't need employees. They probably could have made it just fine on their own. They probably could have ran their business, made a decent living for themselves, and just been just fine. But they chose to try and build their business up. They chose to have employees. They chose to try and grow. They chose the challenge. They, um, they get up at 5 a.m. day after day. They you know, do their workout and then 
they go out and, and they're on the email or at the job by, by 6 or 7, and they're at the office until 6 or 7 o'clock at night. It's funny, but, you know, I read a lot of articles, and it seems to me that a lot of people who live in cities, I don't know, maybe they just they don't know their bosses, or maybe they've just never worked for a small or medium-sized business. But, see, the reason why I am, I am pro-business and I am pro-CEO, I am pro those people, is because I've met them. And it's like you're walking next to somebody that, that's almost like Superman. It's like, man, you're, you get up, you work later than me, you work harder than me, and you do it day after day after day so that you can have employees, that you can grow your business. And here's the thing. They have failed before. Most of them have failed before in business. And if they failed again, make no mistake, it wouldn't be long before they were back on top. Why? Because they work harder and do more and are smarter than the next guy. They know how they got to be the boss. So when my boss says to me, I need you to get this done, plow the field, tend to the flock, come into the house, get dinner ready, the answer is, yep, we'll do, happy to. Because I know that my work is going to be rewarded. I know my boss is a good guy, and my work is good work. It may be hard work. It may be uncomfortable. But quite frankly, that's the kind of work you get to brag about. Nobody tells stories about the easy jobs when things went smooth. Nobody tells stories about that, about the easy days. We brag about the tough jobs, the long hours, the hard days where we earned the check. Those are the days that we brag about. And notice in our story that the job changes. They go from working out in the field, tending to the flock, and then they're in the master's house. And serving the master. And if there is a good life to be lived, it is this being purchased, being redeemed, having repented from sin and death, then to spend our lives in good service, good work, drawing closer to Christ. That's all we ask for, right? We'll close with um, with Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. Yes, it is. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord! How profound your thoughts! Senseless people do not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For you're surely your enemies, Lord. Surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Father, thank you for this wonderful time together. Thank you for the many blessings you have given us. Father, we lay some things before you. We've got dear friends who have lost their son-in-law. and Father, I seek their comfort. And Father, if there's 
anything that we can do to help them, to carry them, please open our eyes, open our ears, that we would be right there with them. Do not want them to suffer in, alone in silence, Father, please. Father, we have cancer and uh, surgeries coming up. And Father, we, um, we just seek that you guide doctors' hands, that you be with nurses, that you get us good results. We, uh, we love the people that you have put in our lives, Father, and we just, we're begging for more time. Father, our kids are going back to school, and we lift them up to you, that you would see them, that you would know their hearts, that you would know their struggles, that you would be right there with them, guiding their, their little hands and feet as they go back to school. Please be the loudest voice that they hear throughout their day. Father, we lift up this year to you. Thank you for giving us another opportunity, another chance. Please help us to know your truth, to speak your truth, to proclaim your truth, and to do so to those who need it, those who desperately need it. Lord, please help us to keep from putting stumbling blocks in front of others. Please break down barriers that would keep us from loving on your people. Please, Lord, give us the resources to provide for those around us that we could see the poor at our gates and not just see them, not just know them, but lift them up. Father, we, we are seeking to be your church and your people. Please rebuke us, correct us. If there are things that are wrong, please get our paths straight. We are seeking your face, O oh Lord, this week, this month, this year. We ask all of that in the loving name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Miss Barb, I think, yeah.